Did you notice that Levi was the most mature kid up there? All right, well, we are doing Cornerstone today, and the children are leaving also with their leaders. For us today, we're going to turn in our Bibles to a new book for study today. It is Nahum. Nahum. I'll take a few minutes to find it. Nahum is one of the minor prophets, one of the 12 minor prophets. But, you know, back in April, we had studied one of the minor prophets. His name was Jonah. We embarked upon a journey with Jonah back last spring, you may remember, because we talked about how the Lord had instructed Jonah, as you get into the story of Jonah, we learned very quickly, the Lord had instructed Jonah to go preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. You know the story. I don't probably have to remind you. But you know Jonah disobeyed and he ran from God. He boarded a ship, a Phoenician vessel most likely, from the port of Joppa, and headed in the complete opposite direction toward which the Lord had told him to go, he headed towards Tarshish. Well, subsequently, as the storyline goes, God sent a mighty tempest upon the, the sea, a great storm, maybe not so much like the hurricane coming upon the coast, but a mighty storm coming upon the boat. The sailors got nervous. They asked what was happening. They looked right at Jonah. Jonah said, it is me. Go ahead and throw me overboard, and it will cease. They were hesitant at first, but they did throw Jonah overboard, and surely it did cease. But we also learned shortly after Jonah was thrown overboard, the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, kept him inside for three days. After three days, we know the Lord had the great fish to regurgitate Jonah back up on dry land. And upon dry land, the Lord then speaks again to Jonah. And gives him the same command as before to go to Nineveh. But this time, Jonah listens and he obeys. And he preaches to Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, the message then, the Ninevites hear, they listen, they repent. It's a very short, brief message, yes, but it made a powerful impact upon the residents of Nineveh, upon the king, they became sorrowful for their evil. It tells in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, they call for a fast and the sackcloth came out. They put them on from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah then obeyed. He went and did as the Lord told him to do. There's this great fast, sackcloth. There's repentance everywhere. So Jonah must be one of the happiest preachers alive, right? Well, no, not really. We find out later that he had great displeasure. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry that the Lord did not put the calamity upon the Ninevites. Remember, he had a great, he, he despised the Ninevites. He hated them greatly. And he'd rather the Lord have calamity, destruction, and ruin upon the Ninevites rather than saving them from all that. But overly, ultimately, for Jonah, it was a lesson. That God is merciful. He is loving. He is a compassionate God. Even to people and to those that we might despise. So the storyline tells us in Jonah, the reason I go back to Jonah before we go to Nahum, is because now we find the Ninevites have repented and they've left their evil way. Right? Only temporarily did they leave their evil way. 
See, today we look into the oracle of Nahum because we find that Nahum is going to tell us more regarding to the story, if you will, pertaining to the Ninevites. Now, granted, Nahum comes up on the scene much later after Jonah, about 150 years approximately. But like Jonah, Nahum speaks to the great city Nineveh. But this time, there is no message of repent or else. This time, Nahum, the Lord calls this particular prophet to pronounce judgment upon Nineveh. As you hear all that, perhaps you're wondering, well, why then would we need to go further into the story pertaining to these wicked Ninevites that maybe was once repentant but now not? Why would we need to consider these words from the prophetic book of Nahum? Well, the answer to that question, if it's looming in your mind, is it has to do with the theme of Nahum. So what is the underlying theme of Nahum? Here it is, which is in your notes. That one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. Let me say that again. The reason we venture into Nahum with a little bit of Jonah back in April, now moving forward in the fall to Nahum, is that one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. Now think about that for a moment. Because is that not maybe an indication of where we are in our country right now? I mean, we've had revival. But the revival we had from years ago, has it moved to anything today that we can see in which this generation today has that same spark? Because we seem to see, if not already, then it fading and burning out greatly, rapidly. Yes, we find that that is indeed the case. So today we consider the words of Nahum. Stand with me today as we do so to honor the reading of the Word of God. We're going to look into Nahum chapter 1. And if you're there, it's going to be just the first six verses of Nahum chapter 1. Here's what the Word tells us this morning. Nahum chapter 1 verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He, he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Father, Lord, we come into your presence at this moment, Lord, just asking today that we could understand better the book of Nahum and his prophetic word. We pray, Lord, that you'll lead and guide and direct these words today. That it would not be my words, Lord, that be expressed here, but through the Spirit, the, Lord, the words that you want us to hear today. Let us learn, expand, and certainly apply. And then let's be thankful for what we shall learn to hear today and apply it to our day and time. We're thankful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, now as we begin to embark upon this particular journey, a different journey, yes, from Jonah, through the book of Nahum, which, by the way, is only three chapters in length, I think it's right that we start with a brief informational introduction. So the first thing that maybe we're asking here today as we're introduced to this new prophetic book is who is Nahum? Well, notice in verse 1, we don't learn a lot about who Nahum is as a prophet. He really just tells us in verse 1 that he is from Elkosh, which means then that he's an Elkoshite, which really just means he's from the village of Elkosh. I mean, if you're from Evansville, what's that make you? An Evansville resident? Evansville-ite? If you're from Petersburg, what's that make you? A Pikeite? For real, a Pikeite? Okay. If you're from Hazleton, you're a river rat. That's where I'm from originally. So it doesn't tell us a lot about who Nahum is. It just kind of tells him maybe where he's from. But the interesting thing about Nahum as you study the Hebrew is you learn about what his name means. All the Hebrew names would mean something significantly. So as you learn about uh, Nahum, you learn that his name means comfort. Which is interesting because he is not about to give any kind of comfortable message to the Ninevites. Another thing we may wonder about the prophetic book of Nahum was when it was written. Scholars suggest most likely it was written between 663 B.C. when Assyria conquered Egypt and 609 B.C. when Assyria fell to Babylon. But again, we go back to the question then, maybe more important for all of us, is why read and study and consider the book of Nahum? I mean, we're given the underlying theme that one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. But we also find, as we go through these three chapters of Nahum, that anger is a central theme in the book of Nahum. And we'll certainly see the anger of God provoked in our text today and for the next several weeks. And what we're going to learn is when God's anger is provoked, unlike us, he remains in control. Simultaneously, he will not let evil then provoke nor can persist in evil forever. Ultimately, what we actually find with the purpose of Nahum is this. We find that it is to assure the people that evil does not endure forever and that God will one day fulfill his plan to restore good permanently. I'm going to repeat that for a minute, but think about those words. The purpose we're going to find with Nahum is to be for us to have some assurance that evil, everything that we see on TV today seems to be full of evil, of wickedness, of any kind of wrongdoing. If there's something positive pertaining to the news, you rarely hear about it. You, you, there is more glamorous for the networks to tell you everything negative happening to the world. And it's so too easy to hear it. So everything we hear seems to be abounding in wickedness and evil. So we can get so caught up in it, we think, well, this is the way it's going to be forever. But Nahum shows us it's not going to be that way forever. That God will one day fulfill his plan to restore good, and it will be so permanent. That's what we can find through studying the book of Nahum. So let us get started upon our journey. And we go back to verse 1, which tells us again, it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. 
And so we talked about how Nahum is from Elkosh, but you know, we don't often hear about an oracle. So we need to define maybe what is an oracle. Well, to say it's an oracle really means this then. It's a divine revelation communicated through God's spokesperson, normally a prophet, but also a priest or a king, usually pronouncing blessing, instruction, or judgment. Now, rather interestingly, in our translation that we typically preach from and read from, the English Standard Version, you don't see the word burden there. If you have a King James Version, it kind of throws in the word burden, which gives us some hint of some wrath. We don't find any hint of wrath within the first verse. But the King James kind of leads into the fact there's going to be wrath pronounced upon the Ninevites in the very first verse by telling us there's a burden upon Nineveh. Now, as you hear that, we go back again to Jonah. Because we say, okay, I'm hearing you now, but let me make sure I am understanding all this right. Because we just talked about months ago how these Ninevites in the book of Jonah had, had seemingly repented and, and then now you're saying, wait a minute, they're, they're not repenting? I mean, I, I thought that they were spared of all this destruction. So it was like, is God like changing his mind? I mean, what's happening here? Well, I don't know if God's changing his mind. But yes, absolutely positively, we find evidence in the text of Jonah that the Ninevites did repent of their evil, wicked way. And then God indeed spared them from all the wrath and destruction that Jonah really wanted to be upon the city. But that was then. And now this is a different time. That was then. This is now. Two complete separate records of books. Jonah has a record of the Ninevites repenting. But now, 150 years later, you find evidence that they've returned to their wicked, evil ways. This is a whole new generation. A whole new generation now is within the city of Nineveh. And it seems they have completely returned to everything evil and wicked, maybe even worse than their forefathers. Matthew Henry puts it in perspective for us. He said, during the time of Jonah, the Ninevites saw clearly how much it was to their advantage to turn from their evil way. It was the saving of their city. And yet soon after, now we find a name, they returned to it again. It became worse than ever, a bloody city full of lies and robbery. They repented of their repentance, returned with a dog to his vomit, and at length grew worse than they ever they had been. You think our country's there yet? If not, then maybe we're headed there. I can't imagine our founding fathers thinking about what would happen 200 plus years later, where God would be mentioned to be completely off the currency, taking, you know, not even the Pledge of Allegiance, all these things would be removed pertaining to God. The evil, wicked way of the country and the world seems to be for lack of a better word, prospering. It's almost like there's been that great revival, but that's then and gone. This new generation comes to care less about it. That's where we find ourselves, in the country and the world. In some sense, it's what happened here with the Ninevites. Jonah 
preached a very short, simple message. But they heard it. They fasted. They put on sackcloth. They repented. They had hearts that changed. We find evidence in Jonah that hearts were changed. But now in Nahum, it seems like it's all gone away. So in short, we could actually say here then that because of what's happened between then and now, we can say the Lord is greatly angered. Which is precisely what we find here in the text. Go back again, look at verse 2. It tells us in verse 2, first it says the Lord is jealous, which we'll come back to later. But notice how it says it's, he's also an avenging God. Now notice how many times you see the word avenging or wrath. He is an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I mean, it's like the Lord is he's like fed up with it. He's angry. He's not going to take it anymore. Verse 6, it actually says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Doesn't that certainly suggest that the Lord has looked upon everything happening now in Nineveh and has said, enough already. Enough. And is about then to take his vengeance and wrath upon him. But as we notice that, we also can't dismiss the fact that verse 3 then quickly comes in with a little bit of a contradiction. And it says, The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. I mean, he's like he's fed up with it, he's tired of it. But then. And he's going to do some wrath and vengeance upon them. But all of a sudden, now verse 3 says, but he, oh, women, but the Lord is slow to anger. Maybe not an oxymoron, but almost like a contradiction exists in the text. So how can we make sense of this? It makes sense of the fact that when the Lord then is angry, when he is provoked, yes, he's slow to anger. But when he is angered, when he is provoked, he often then displays and punishes those quickly and suddenly. There's many numerous examples within the text in Old Testament, particularly in the Bible, to be able to prove this is true. Take, for example, in Leviticus chapter 10, there's two priests named Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu know as they're trained to be priests, they should bring particular fire to the altar. But they offer strange, profane fire to the altar. The Lord commanded them not to do so. But as a result, when you find Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, they were consumed immediately. It's like the Lord's anger was aroused. And all of a sudden, he saw these men not do what they were supposed to do. And he consumed them. Verse, verse 2 actually says he devoured them. And they died before him. When his anger is provoked, when he's had enough, yeah, he may be slow to anger, but when he is provoked, he acts suddenly and quickly. As evidence in Leviticus chapter 10. But it's just not one case undone. You can find another, perhaps 2 Samuel 6. When Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant to steady it, as a result, the Lord was angered and he struck the man dead. Here's the actual words in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, reading from the King James. He said, Uzzah put forth his hand to, ark, to the ark of God and took hold of it. 
for the oxen had shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Again, notice how suddenly God, yeah, he slowed to anger, but when he was angered, when he had provoked, he acted suddenly and quickly. I mean, notice, if you will, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, the text states the anger of the Lord was kindled. And here then, we go back now to Nahum and Nineveh, be sure to recognize then that the anger of the Lord is once again kindled. And he chooses Nahum, the prophet from Elkosh, to carry the burden of the Lord's anger to the Ninevites, indicating that he is time for him to avenge. He is an avenging God. He's ready to take care of business. He was slow in anger, but now he's had enough and he is about to do something about it. Notice also, if you will, back to the fact that verse 2 tells us that he was not just an avenging God. It says he's also a jealous God, which we must try to make sense of this. We must recognize that we're blessed to serve a mighty, sovereign, powerful, omnipotent God. But yes, he is not only an avenging God, but he is a jealous God. Let's run with this for a moment. I mean, look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Every translation I checked said the Lord is a jealous God. But the question really comes for me as I studied the text for you this morning is why Why would Nahum now suggest, I mean, he's already talking about how God has had enough, how he's avenging, going to pour wrath. He's slow to anger, but he's had enough of it, so he's about to act. But he also says he's a jealous God. Why would Nahum also include in the text that God is jealous? What's God got to be jealous about for anything? When you consider jealousy, when you think about it, jealousy is throughout the Bible. And every time you seem to find something about jealousy in the Bible, you find it is not an admirable characteristic to have. It's not a trait that we should possess. I mean, take Joseph, for example. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph as you know, gets a special coat from his father, Jacob. He does not do anything but taunt that in front of his brothers. His brothers get immensely jealous of, of Joseph. So much so, they despise him, hate him. They see him coming upon the scene horizon one day when Jacob asked Joseph to go check upon his brothers. And as they see him coming, they say, well, here comes Joseph. And this, 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 they make a plan. This is this, to murder him. Or, and I think uh, he's talked out of it. So they, they put him into the pit, eventually sell him to the Ishmaelites. Jealousy is not found favorable in the Bible. Another account is Cain and Abel. Jealousy again an issue. So much so that the first murder ever recorded in the Bible is given to us in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain killed Abel. It's all about jealousy. Jealousy is never found within the text of something to admire and to have in our lives. It's not an admirable characteristic trait to possess. And something as Christians we should not be. We should not be jealous. I mean, James told us in chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16. But you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. 
do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And he says this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So now Nahum is saying God is a jealous God. I mean, here we see evidence from the text that God as being jealous. But we're not supposed to be jealous. It's not a trait we should possess. So what is it meaning here which says that he is a jealous God? I think it means that he is justified in his jealousy. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, that makes no sense at all. He can be justified in his jealousy. Are you getting some strange looks being given upon me then? Suggesting that God is justified in jealousy. Because there might be some new term, new phrase, new expression in having justified jealousy. She said, well, how can you have justified jealousy? Well, run with you for a moment into Exodus chapter 20 where we find the Big Ten. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness. Verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Here it comes. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. There it is. He is a jealous God. So Nahum's not making anything up. It says, Lord, it says, I am a jealous God. So how can we make sense? How we connect all this together? Well, note that the Lord is jealous in the sense of his commandment. Or better yet, the Lord is justified in his jealousy in relation to what he has told us through keeping his commandments. Maybe it's still confusing, so let me borrow the words of Warren Worsby. He says this then, Jealousy is a sin if it means being envious of what others have and wanting to possess it. But it's a virtue if it means cherishing what we have and wanting to protect it. Worsby's words can help clear up a bit of the confusion. I mean, make no mistake, God is cherishing you and me as his children and desires to protect us. I mean, Worsby, in his commentary, words it as a virtuous jealousy. I'm simply rewording it and expressing it a little differently as a justified jealousy. And that God cherishes the time with us and what he has, he wants to protect it. And that way is a justified jealousy in which he is pronounced as a jealous God. But in regards to all that, here's the truth we need to know. Since God made everything and owns everything, he is envious of no one. But since he is the only true God, he is jealous over his glory, his name, and the worship and honor that are due to him alone. And that's a lot of words. You can see me behind me, but make sure you process that and think about that for a moment. God made everything and owns everything. He's envious of no one. I mean, he is God. He's the only true God. Which means then that he is jealous of the glory, his name, 
the worship and honor that you only come to him. Only come to him. And God is an all-forgiving, loving God. And because it's true, shouldn't he only be praised and worshiped and honored? Yes. It should be totally God we honor and praise. So essentially, we should not honor, worship anything but God. But do we? The Ninevites did. Are we doing that today? Think about our country today. Are we today honoring God in the way that we did 200 years ago? Are we even honoring God today in our country the way we did 50 years ago? A lot has changed rapidly and quickly. And the God is an avenging and jealous God. So you become to see how maybe what we're finding here in Nahum is coming to apply because we should not worship and honor and glorify anything but only God because only he deserves it. But then when we do glorify, worship other things, which we're all guilty of at times, it'd be even worse today than years ago, God's anger is kindled. And when it's angered, when he's angered, when he's kindled, when it's aroused and provoked, he'll do something about it. The text tells us today he is about to do something about it for the Ninevites. We go back once more because we see in verse 2 through 6, it tells us he is about to spell out his vengeance. Again, the Lord's avenging and wrathful in verse 2. Verse 3, the Lord by no means clear the guilty. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. The mountains will quake before him. Verse 5, the hills melt, the earth heaves. And verse 6, who can stand when God gets angry, when he gets ready to deliver, who can stand before him? Who can receive the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The text begins to spell out that vengeance is not ours, that vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he's about in this text, with the Ninevites, to take vengeance upon his adversaries. His wrath is about to come upon his enemies. And then so we need to apply it similarly to today. You think God is pleased with what he sees happening in the country, in the world today? Certainly not. You think God will continue to tolerate the things progressing? worse in society only for so long perhaps vengeance belongs to God he's a jealous God he's an avenging God so in due time wrath and judgment will come and maybe you're thinking to yourself well I think I'm hearing you but I'm simply not seeing it all I continue to see from time to time again, from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. I'm not seeing it get any better. I'm not seeing God have any kind of judgment, any kind of punishment, anybody. I see the rich continue to win. I see evil triumphing over good. It just happens all over. I mean, consider what happened last week just in Afghanistan. The things in Afghanistan is troubling. 
People trying to escape can't get away, and then you have also the Taliban come in and just confuse it and make things worse again. It's like the evil continues to win time and time again. And that's the way you find it throughout history. So it seems, I mean, consider the Holocaust. It seems that history so many times repeats itself where evil wins. Or if we're not thinking about history and how evil can repeat itself and win and win again. I mean, think about the things that happen every day we hear about, like murder and rape. It happens repeatedly. Evil from God's adversaries seems to be abounding in the world. And we all see this, so the question really becomes, if vengeance really is God's, why aren't we seeing his vengeance upon these ruthless evil people? Why is it not happening? I mean, yeah, the text says it shall happen. It's going to happen to Nineveh. It's happened before, but why is God continuing to tolerate things as we see today? That's what we get asked all the time, don't we? Why is God not doing anything? Why did he allow 9-11 to happen? Where is God? Well, the answer to that is that we have to remember God is here. God has seen it all. Yes, he's a jealous, avenging God, but he's also a patient God. We'll put me in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Where he said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any shall perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, I know a lot of people get upset when bad things happen to good people, and we see that all the time where bad things happen to good people. But we must remember and appreciate the fact that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. But when he is ready to punish, he will do so swiftly and he do so quickly. Revelation reminds us of this fact, that a day and time will come and vengeance will be his. But in the meantime, we're saying in the meantime, while we're here, we're here because God has a purpose and plan for us. We are his ambassadors. We are his true followers. And we must share his love and truth with all the evildoers that are out there. We may despise them, like maybe Jonah did with the Ninevites. But it's still our responsibility, it's our duty to continue to preach the good news to even the evildoers. We're here to do the work of him who sent us here. To be a light into the dark, evil, ruthless, wicked world. We're here to make it brighter. Are we doing that? Are we here truly trying to make light into the world? Or sometimes we here making it more dark? That's a question maybe only you can answer. God, God has us here to be light into the world. His light can shine through us. And remember that, you know, we, we don't want God to rush in too quickly. When you think about it, because when God would rush in too quickly, some of those evildoers, people that maybe don't have a repentant heart, maybe people of our family. You know, God gave us time to repent. So maybe he is still working in another roof of sinner's life too, giving them yet time to repent. 
That's food for thought. But yet we must also recognize and maybe go back to and prepare to conclude that the Lord will someday see enough. That maybe time is beginning to run short. Maybe time is beginning to run out. Maybe someday truly the Lord will have enough. His anger will be aroused greatly and his heart be grieved as it was in the days of Noah. I mean, in the days of Noah, I mean, he punished the world. The day of time is coming once more. Well, he'll call up his church. He'll bring fire upon the earth because the vengeance is the Lord's. Today, we're simply having just a little bit of introduction to the book of Nahum. We've got a lot more to go, a lot more to consider before these next three weeks are completed. But here's the application we must leave with. Recognizing he is a jealous and avenging God. And that sometime unknown to us, the time will run out. The application is do not be caught up in the Lord's wrath. Make no mistake, it will come suddenly upon the earth. Some unday, day, unknown day and time will often and suddenly come upon us. I mean, if you look at things happening today, people talk about how bad it is today. We get the hurricane coming up on the coast right now. We got going to hit New Orleans, going to hit Louisiana. We got the pandemic we're still in the sense of. We got the earthquake that happened in Haiti. We got murder, we got evil, we got rape, all these things, all these disasters happening all around us. It can't get any worse, but yes, it will get worse. In fact, the world has not seen wrath from the hand of God. Not yet, but it will. And when it happens, it'll be sudden, it'll be swift, it'll be quickly. So it behooves all of us to not be caught up in the Lord's wrath. And the only way you can truly prepare is to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only way to truly prepare for what is coming. If you've never chosen Jesus as Lord, do so. Father.